again, welcome, welcome. Happy Mother's Day, but I'll get to that later, so don't think about it too much. <laughs> the announcements first. Um, we have our partnership class coming up this coming Saturday that goes from nine to one, and it is such a cool um, thing to just kind of hear about who we are as a church and how you can get involved. That's why we call it the partnership class. Um, and we don't sit there and say, hey, you do this and you do this and we have gaps. And no, we just want to get to know you and let you know how the church works here at Brookview and answer questions that you might have. And so it's a pretty informal thing um, that Jason does and it's really cool. So if you consider Brookview your church home or you're just kind of checking it out and you're like, yeah, let's peek behind the curtain a bit, that is a great way to do it and get some of your questions asked. And um, we do need an RSVP for that because we do have some class materials and food that we want to feed you. And so if you could do that either today or tomorrow, that will help us just kind of get going on our work week. Um, and you can do that by filling out the Connect card that's on your, um, your seat there or by texting the word partner to that um, number behind me. Or if you're watching at home, you can also go online and fill out our online Connect card. And then the following day, we get to gather for brunch together around tables. And really the theme of our morning is to talk about how have we seen God kind of show up in our lives in this last season as we have gathered together as church family and as we have kind of tried to live love in the world around us. And so we would love to have you sit at a table and just kind of hear and participate however that makes sense for you and eat some good food. Um, we're going to be outside because the weather is nice as far out as we can see. So be prepared for that. We do have some tents that we can pop up for shade for those of you that are not sun worshipers like I might be. Um, but so we're just hoping for just um, great conversation. And oftentimes it gets so crowded in here that it's hard to hear what people are saying around the table. So it's pretty fun that we get to move outdoors. Um, for those of you that do watch us online, we won't be streaming that service, and so we will pick back up with you the following Sunday. So next Sunday, no live stream will be happening because that's kind of tough to do from the parking lot. Um, we are still in need of a couple of casseroles. There are many of you that said, hey, I can do two if you need it, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, but I would love it if we didn't have to double up on those casseroles and we got a few more people that were willing to bring them. Recipe's pretty easy. We have someone bringing vegan and vegetarian as well. So if you have some dietary restrictions, we have most of them covered. If you can't eat eggs, we do have yogurt. If you can't have dairy, we'll have some granola bars and fruit. So um, you don't Okay, I'm talking too much, moving along. The way that you can tell us that you'd like to bring a casserole, you don't have to RSVP to the event, just if you're willing to bring something, that dish to share, and I can send you the recipe, um, is by texting, is that true? Oh, I don't tell you any of that, do I? <laughs> Fill out your Connect card on your chair or online. Okay, next thing is, Mm -hmm. There it is, Cedar Way and Vision House. Our monthly distribution is actually happening this coming Tuesday. 
Um, and I see that many of you brought items um, into the lobby this morning, so thank you. Um, if you are interested in being on that distribution list that goes out oftentimes a week and a half in advance, this time it was three days. Um, so we are obviously scrambling just a bit, but thank you, you guys for your generosity and for um, just helping families in need in our community. Um, if you are able to give to that, um, you can text the word helping to the Brookview number. You can also sign up on the Connect card today not online because I'm not going to get online after today. But if you do it here in person, I will look at those from the basket and send you a quick link to our digital sign up. Um, what you do is you just drop the items right off on the doors on the ramp here and we come and pick those up and then we take them to Cedar Way and then to Vision House as well. So thank you in advance again. Soccer club, it feels like summer, so we might as well talk about it, is coming up um, at, towards the end of our summer, August 11th, 7th through the, 7-11, we should get Slurpees. Okay, I digress. Um, we are looking for volunteers, all sorts of volunteers. We need coaches, assistant coaches, check-in people, people to help with our store, um, all sorts of things. So if you are able to do that and volunteer for Soccer Club, we would so, so, so love to have you. And um, we have a huge barbecue on Friday here at the church, and so we need a ton of volunteers that might just be able to take a little bit of time off of work um, to do that and grill burgers and all of this, all the things. Um, lots of ways to serve, but it is a pretty cool thing that we get to do together get outside of these four walls and to love kids and love their families in a really unique way. So I am looking forward to that. Our registration is open and it is rocking and rolling. We are getting registrations every day. Um, and so if you have a friend that you would like to invite to Soccer Club, would you share that link with them? We'd love to have them come. It is a cool way for you to get to connect with um, other families while you sit on the sidelines and cheer for your kids as we cheer for your kids as coaches as well. So sign up for that at brookviewchurch.com forward slash soccer. And um, I think it's on the main webpage as one of the tabs as well, if that helps you a little bit. Groundskeeping, it is so beautiful here around the church and that team is doing an incredible job of just making our space look welcome like we live here um, and be a bright spot in the community but also for us as we walk in but they're in a place where they're needing a couple more people to add to their team specifically what they're needing is people who what do I call it sturdy backs is that it, you don't have to be young just sturdy backs. Um, they, they need some people that can really help with the mowing and the weed whacking, which is a little bit more physically demanding. Um, and they also are looking for some people that might be willing to come during the middle of the week to water and keep things green. We do not have an in-ground sprinkler system here. And so when the sun comes out like it has this week and will continue, um, everything gets a little parched. So if you can help with that at all, um, that would be awesome. And the way that you do that is by texting the word grounds to the Brookview number, filling out your in-person connect card or going online to do that. And we will pass you along to Tim and Lynette King who are do an incredible job of organizing our grounds te team and keeping it great around here. 
I did mention the Connect cards, so cards, so I'm gonna stop talking about them. But we love it when you fill them out and you put them in the basket on your way out this morning. Um, and then for those of you that are watching online, filling those out as well. Mother's Day, here we are. Here at Brickview, we celebrate women, not just mothers, because we believe that God created women with this ability to nurture and to love. I mean, all of us have it because God has it, and we are made in his image. And we just like to celebrate what that is. And we understand that today is a day of joy for some. It's a day of grief for some. It's a day of hardship, but also a, a beautiful day of community and spending time to be grateful for all that God has given us. And so you, wherever you fall on that, we celebrate you, and we love you, and we care about you. And the way that we do that is really, you know, simple. Nail polish and chocolate. Nail polish and chocolate for every woman here. So if you are a female, um, you get some nail polish and you get some chocolate on your way out the door. And that's for the little girls as well. So if you have kids in Kids Church, go ahead and bring them up here. We like them to know that today is every woman's day at church. So without further ado, we will get our tissues, ladies, because it's our annual reading of I'll Love You Forever. This one's big. I love it. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old and he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old, and he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. <laughs> but at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the if he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, 
As long as I'm living my baby, you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. That teenager grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home and got a house across town. But sometimes, on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his bedroom window, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of his bed. If that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. One day she called up her son and said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. When he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I love you forever. I like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and sick. The son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song I love you forever. I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my mommy will be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The end. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, that I've loved you with an everlasting love. So God's love is one that is forever, for always. As long as we are living, we are his children, and he just adores us.
Let me pray and thank God for that. God, I thank you for this picture of love that you are to us and the, the model that so many of us have had on this earth of women, powerful women that love in powerful, unique ways. And God, I pray that you would help us to be love and light to those around us. God, that we would be a reflection of you. God, that you would hold us in the places that we need you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Jennifer Huguenin, since you're up here, I want to tell you, you look especially beautiful today. And I'm really glad that you're the mom of my kids. So imagine you're a part of a family who God promised to give a land, a place where you'll be safe, at peace, and provided for. But instead, you end up enslaved in a foreign land. You're not home. Decades go by, then centuries go by, and as a people, you wonder and you doubt if things will ever get better. It seems like your whole life is waiting on a promise. You're waiting and longing and hoping and and waiting. And so you learn to do what we all kind of do when we wait for so long. You learn how to live with it. You learn to survive. 430 years of survival shapes you. It changes how you see the world, how you see yourself. 430 years of hoping, praying, and waiting. And then in the, in the middle of the waiting, a, a voice comes from a fire and says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering." So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. Now those are good words. Those are welcome words. Because they promise something every human heart yearns for, home. Have you ever noticed that like filmmakers and philosophers and theologians and musicians often describe the human condition as a longing for home? I mean, I think of the movie Avatar. It touches a a longing for a world where resources and people aren't exploited, but all creation can flourish. It's a longing for home. I think of The Notebook. 
touches that longing where you are wanted, even when your mind is failing and your lucid moments are fleeting, even when you are ravaged by Alzheimer's, you are wanted and you are loved. That's home. Or how about the Lion King? God bless James Earl Jones. <laughs> Remember. You guys, that's such brilliant casting. James Earl Jones, right? Luke, I am your father, right? Simba, I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> the Lion King, right? It, it, it touched a longing for a land where evil, self-serving, oppressive rulers are, are banished and the kingdom can then thrive in harmony at last, right? That's, that's home. And part of why these stories resonate, it's the same story again and again. Part of the reason that they resonate is because they remind us that our longing for home is a universal human experience. Like theologians often touch on our longing for home. They write about it all the time. C.S. Lewis writes, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Or as the great theologian from Kansas once said, there's no place like home. <laughs> in other words, our unsatisfied longings tell us that we are not home yet. And this, this longing for home is not just for the religious, right? It's everywhere. It's our, our, our entire culture is hungering, longing for something, longing for home. And you can see it on your drive to the gym. You can see it if you jog in your neighborhood. You can hear the cry behind the passion of every protest and every social media post. There's a pervasive human ache because something about this doesn't feel right. We're not home. And although there's a ton of beautiful, restorative work that people do all through this world, we're still waiting, we're still longing. This theme is all over our music as well. Um, we got any Ed Sheeran fans in here? You guys are quiet folks. <laughs> He's kind of a chill. He's got kind of a chill vibe. Uh, not long ago, he came out with a song that just, I, just really hit me. It's called Supermarket Flowers. And it's about the stinging loss of his grandma, who was, who was very sick and then passed. He calls her his mum, M-U-M, very British. And it's about the processing afterward. And let, me, let me just read the lyrics of this. He says, I took the supermarket flowers from the windowsill. I threw the day-old tea from the cup. Packed, the f packed up the photo album Matthew had made, memories of a life that's been loved. Took the get well soon cards and stuffed animals. Poured, out the old, poured the old ginger beer down the sink. Dad always told me, don't cry when you're down, but mom, there's a tear every time that I blink. Oh, I'm in pieces, and it's tearing me up. But I know a heart that's been broke is a heart that's been loved. So I'll sing hallelujah. You were an angel in the shape of my mom. When I fell down, you'd be there holding me up. Spread your wings as you go, and when God takes you back, we'll say, hallelujah, you're home. Fluffed the pillows, made the beds, stacked the chairs up. Folded your nightgowns neatly in a case. John said he'd drive, then put his hand on my cheek and wiped a tear from the side of my face. I hope that I see the world as you did, because I know a life with love is a life that's been lived. So I'll sing hallelujah. 
You were an angel in the shape of my mom. When I fell down, you'd be there holding me up. Spread your wings as you go. And when God takes you back, we'll say, hallelujah, you're home. This thread of, of home, of a longing for home, it, you guys, it's woven all into the human experience. Even baseball. You know I had to work some baseball into this, right? Mariners have won two in a row. They're on fire. Yeah, it's a streak. So, okay, in baseball, the object is to go home, right? To be safe at home. Because when you're running the bases, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable trying to get to first base, and you're vulnerable trying to get to second and to third. And after you make it to third, logically, you'd think you'd go to fourth base, right? But you don't. You go, you go home because once you get home, you're safe. And it's interesting. I, I, there may not be another word as powerful and as emotionally charged as that one little word, home. It can fill your heart. It can make you smile. It can make you cry. It doesn't matter how old you are or how independent you may be or how much you've achieved. That one little word touches the deepest place in the human heart. And I think it's why a silly little story about being rocked back and forth, back and forth, back and forth can oddly stir something in us. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I gotta stop listening to this because I gotta speak in a second. <laughs> and I know, Tony, you're like, you're such a wuss. <laughs> I am a wuss. But it's this longing for home and and addressing this longing for home that we all feel, that we can hear Jesus' words where he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus shows up to the human story and says that he is the light that we're longing for. But Jesus, he said this pre-Edison. In his day and for most of human history, light confronted the dark in only one way. How? By, by fire. So here's, here's the story of the Israelites shortly after their liberation from Egypt. It says, after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. Can you imagine that? And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So when God led his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, he lit their way through a pillar of fire. And so just imagine for a second what that would be like. I mean, envision seeing that fire in the distance, not like a little tiny candle, but this pillar of fire that is leading you through the wilderness guiding people through the dark, keeping them warm at night. And when the Egyptian army came chasing from behind, the fire acted as protection. It moved from in front of the people to behind the people, placing itself between them and the, and ar the armies of Pharaoh to protect them. Yahweh, the great light, led the people through the wilderness. And this was remembered, and it was celebrated during Jesus' day at a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, recently we, we talked about this feast, connecting it to Ezekiel's vision of the healing waters. Any of you remember that? Thank God. It wasn't that long ago. So, about how, like, every morning the priests would pour water down the temple steps 
because the people were crying out to God, asking him to bring the healing waters. Okay, but there's another element to this thing, uh, this seven-day festival, and it was the fire that they would, fires that they would light at night. So all Israel remembered the wilderness journey by camping for seven days in tents or tabernacles. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And at night, they would, they would dance and they would celebrate and they would sing worship songs remembering what God had done for their ancestors. And then they'd fill Jerusalem with light by igniting these massive torches to remember the God who was a fire that led them to freedom and to cry out for that fire to come to them once again. So to that image and to that longing, Jesus spoke at the festival saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That is quite a claim. Right? Jesus is saying, I am the pillar of fire to guide your way. He's claiming to be the light that will lead us home, not just, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He's claiming to be humanity's guiding light, not, not one of many lights, but like the light. But for the light to do us any good, the whole thing is, we have to follow it. His invitation is not just for people to see the light, not just to learn about the light, admire the light, consider the light. It's not just to speculate about the light, appreciate the light, post about the light, write a blog about the light, or gather and sing even about the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows. And this makes sense, I think. I mean, how helpful would it be if you're lost in the wilderness and you have a guide to lead you out, but you don't follow the guide? Well, what's the point of asking God for light if you then don't follow the light? And this is not about Jesus being exclusive or judgmental. It's, it's, his, it's, it's open arms of love and grace. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever. He's not condemning anyone to darkness. Why? Because we're already in it. His desire is to lead us out of it. And in John 12, in fact, he says, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Believe. Jesus says the key to getting out of darkness is to believe. But believing is, is not just like ascribing to a set of theological propositions. That's not what he's talking about. The word believed here can be translated, can also be translated trust. Every human being trusts in something. We all do. Like as humans, our, our lives are built upon narratives, stories that we believe about what it means to be human. So Jesus shows up to a festival dedicated to rehearsing Israel's narrative, really the entire human narrative, the story, the story that says that we've lost our way, that we're wandering in the wilderness searching for home. Jesus shows up to that story and that ache and says, he is the one that we can trust to bring all of humanity home. The real question isn't, like, what do you believe, like, as in mentally ascribed to. The real question is, where do you put your trust? Because whether you're religious or non-religious, you put your trust in something. It could be science. 
could be humanity's ability to fix its own mess or a political program or a human ideal or your own work ethic, your ability to just get her done for yourself. Could be your company, your bank account, your next vacation. Could be the security of your industry within this economy. Your ability to acquire a house, car, clothes, whatever. Could be the medicinal effects of alcohol or your substance of choice. Could be the joy that comes from Vegas or Cabo or whatever. We all put our trust in something. We all build our life on something. And Jesus is asking, where do you put your trust? He's asking us to trust him with our life. And maybe you're somebody who's like, oh yeah, okay, good. Because uh, you know, I've been in church my whole life. And I, I come to church now and like I do church. Okay, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean you actually put your trust in Jesus. You, you can go to church and you can serve and you can give and you can be involved, but at the end of the day, you actually trust something entirely different. Whatever it is, wherever, wherever it is that you put your trust, that's connected to your longing for home. If you trust that your career will lead you home, right? If you trust this is it, this is what will lead me home, then you have to get ahead. Whatever it takes, you might sacrifice your family, your, your integrity, you might sacrifice community, your health, whatever. Because the thing you really trust, that thing you tend to sell out for. If you trust the next vacation or substances or your career or your possessions, then you likely will sacrifice all kinds of things on the altar of that. You know what you really trust by what it is you sacrifice for. So what are you sacrificing for these days? I mean, you can say you trust Jesus, but if all your sacrifices are for something else, then that's probably the thing that you really trust. And Jesus isn't being exclusive. He's not being unloving. He's just asking us to be wise. Will the thing you are trusting ultimately lead you home? Will it really? It's not a rude question. It's not cold-hearted. It's actually loving. And notice what happens next with Jesus and those listening. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many of you, how many of you have heard that before? You, maybe you've never set foot in a church until this moment. You've heard this before, right? This, and this can become so familiar that we miss its meaning. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is easily one of Jesus' most well-known sayings. It's quoted by everyone everywhere, both inside and outside the church. But do we know what he's saying? Jesus is not saying that when you, when you know the right things, then you will find life or freedom or happiness or home. And I think most of us have discovered that right information all by itself is not enough. Like, yes, knowledge and truth are vital. We need to live in, inside of reality. We need to understand reality in order to find life. But notice the part of Jesus' statement that often gets left out when this is quoted. Here's the whole statement in context. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying that if you learn to trust him enough to actually begin to live into his teachings, 
like right in the middle of the big and small moments of life, then you really are free in a way that the world can't take from you. In a sense, you're already home even when you're on the journey. And this theme is just constant in the teachings of Jesus. Like the most complete teaching of Jesus of which we have record is the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew. And you guys, it takes up three whole chapters, three whole chapters of the sermon. You think my sermons are long? Three whole chapters. And at the end of his teaching about how to live free, like how to live in, in, the, in the way that human beings can actually flourish, Jesus ends with a, a, a picture, uh, just a simple picture of reality, a picture of how life actually works. He concludes this, this long sermon with this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's a parable about two home builders, right? I mean, sometimes we want to make this about like a good person versus a bad person. It's not. The comparison is not good versus bad. It's wise versus foolish. One home builder is wise and the other is foolish. The word wise can also be translated smart, intelligent, enlightened, and foolish would be the opposite of all that. So the parable centers around two home builders. And in this metaphor, your, your house is your life. Jesus says a wise person builds their life on the foundation of his teaching. A wise person lives into his teaching about how best to be human. The foolish person, in contrast, hears the teachings of Jesus, maybe knows the teachings of Jesus, might be able to recite the teachings of Jesus, but really walks away from them and doesn't do anything about them. Notice that Jesus doesn't say why. Like, maybe they're busy. Maybe they're tired or worn out. Maybe they prefer other teachings or other teachers. Maybe they love Jesus' words, and when they initially hear them, they feel emotional about them, but then in the ordinary moments of, of life, they get distracted. Jesus doesn't say why, because there's all kinds of reasons. People hear his words, but walk away and then don't put them into practice. So he lets you and I just kind of find ourselves in the story. In this parable, we're intended to ask, like, which home builder am I? And here's the disturbing thing about Jesus' story. In the short term, you can't tell the difference between the houses. Right? Like from a distance, both houses look pretty much the same. They're decorated up, and they look pretty nice. In the short term, looking at the two lives, they actually look super similar. Two people might have the same job, you know, Microsoft or Boeing or teaching or Google or whatever. They might work out at the same gym. They might eat at some of the same places and love the same foods and drinks. They might both have a dog. I mean, from a distance, the two lives look basically the same, and you can hardly tell them apart. But everything gets exposed, Jesus says, when a flood comes. A terrible and sudden diagnosis, right? A tragedy, the loss of a loved one, unemployment, the death of a dream, some kind of catastrophe. And notice that for Jesus, it's not if a flood comes, it's when the flood comes. He says the flood will come. And for some of you, you're in a season, it's flooding right now. But even if things are like pretty good for you right now, 
A flood is coming. I'm just here to encourage you, just to lift you up on Mother's Day. I mean, Jesus is brutally honest about what it means to be human. This is, this is part of what makes his, his teaching so appealing to me. In a day where there's all this self-help, uh, like self-help and sort of the, like the unhelpful pep talk, Jesus is brutally honest. He just says, here's the deal. Life is hard. Whether you follow him or not, it's hard. The wise person and the fool, they go through the same flood. Those that build their life on practicing the way of Jesus and those that, do, that, that build their life on something else, they both have to go through the flood. And this is what's so realistic and honest from Jesus about his teaching. Jesus doesn't lead you out of hardship, but through hardship. Like some immature followers of Jesus and, and certain Christian teachers sort of deny this. They believe and they teach that if you live faithfully, then there's no hardship for you. But I think that that belief system is not only not what Jesus taught, I think it is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. Because the flood will come. And whatever form it takes, it will shake your life to its foundation. And so this is what Jesus wants us to under, understand. The flood will reveal what your life is actually built upon. And so it's, it's vital to consider the foundation of your life. If your life is built on greed or materialism, like acquiring stuff, or on competition, on getting ahead no matter the cost, if it's built on sex or youth or beauty, if it's built around your appearance or looking beautiful, if it's built on popularity, how many people follow you or like you, if it's built on pleasure and the good life, like traveling and eating in nice places, if it's built on safety and predictability and just making sure that nothing bad can happen, if it's built on the altar of any of that, then the flood will bring it down. So I just want to say the invitation of Jesus isn't to like pray a prayer one day, to like go to a Christian camp and get saved through the right prayer, and then spend the rest of your life ignoring the teachings of Jesus. Just relying on the reality that you prayed this prayer once so that one day you can go to heaven when you die. And the invitation isn't to, to go to church and, and like be a cultural Christian using Christian terminology and putting like cute little Christian decorations all over your house and doing a few religious things along the way. Right? There's a big difference between a cultural Christian and a person that is actively building their life on the teachings of Jesus. And you guys know this, right? You've seen this. And when do you notice it most? When is it obvious? It's obvious when somebody gets hit with a flood. For the apprentice of Jesus, the flood is still hard. It's still devastating. But it doesn't bring the house of their life crashing to the ground. Jesus and his way of life are a solid foundation, a foundation you can rest your feet on. And right now, I think some of you are desperate for this. Because your world, in one way or another, it feels like chaos right now. It feels utterly out of control. You need a foundation for your feet. Look at how the crowds responded to Jesus' sermon. This is awesome. When Jesus had finished saying these things for three chapters in Matthew, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the rabbinic style of the day was to like quote another rabbi who came before you. In fact, like this is still the rabbinic style for Judaism to this day. 
So your authority was vested in those that came before you. And so you would get up and teach and you would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this and that and whatever it would be. But it was weird because Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, never taught like that. Jesus would stand up and he would just say, truly, I tell you. And then, boom, he would drop a truth bomb. (laughs) He would name reality. He would put language to the way life actually works. He'd paint a picture of, uh, uh, with words of reality, and then it would ring true. People would process it, and they would go, that is exactly right. And the word or the label for that kind of resonance with reality is authority. And in our culture, we've become very, very suspicious of authority. But for Jesus, his authority wasn't rooted in a title. It wasn't rooted in some like artificial org chart. It wasn't rooted in his gender or, or some oppressive system. Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. Have you ever thought of that? He's a nobody from nowhere. The guy was a carpenter from Nazareth. And so for Jesus, authority came from a totally different place. There was a reason people followed him. His authority was rooted in the truth of his words and in his life example. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of these these last two verses. Here's his paraphrase. He says, when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to the religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. The most potent kind of spiritual authority has nothing to do with a degree. It has nothing to do with a title or where you studied. The most potent kind of authority is that when you speak truth and people hear it, it corresponds to reality. And it corresponds to how you actually live your life. Jesus had that kind of authority. Okay, back to the Gospel of John. Jesus says at the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So next, he leaves the temple grounds and he heals a blind man. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a really dumb question, and, but we won't get into that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the healing is linked to the teaching. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. This isn't just a miracle, it's a sign. It's pointing to who Jesus is. This man is literally blind, but in a sense, we're all blind. And Jesus has come to lead us out of darkness. So what is Jesus like? He's he's like a light that chases after a person in the dark. And many of you have experienced Jesus pursuing you like that. And this is why you've come to trust him. 
In the middle of the darkness, Jesus just comes after you. It's like, Jesus, thank you for the ways you come after us. Thank you for the ways that you're pursuing us even, even now. Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Physical healings are, are more than like intended to just be physical. In healing the body, Jesus is wanting to heal the whole person. After this blind man is healed, the, the whole community is in shock. This guy's been blind since birth, and they've known him his whole life. They're in shock. And everyone keeps coming back to some form of this question. How did this man, how did this blind man receive his sight? So in the rest of the story, four different times, this, this basic form of this question is asked. How, how were your eyes opened? How did you receive sight? They go to the parents. How, how did your son, how is it that your son can now see? Back to the man. What did he do? How did he open your eyes? So the first example of this starts in, in verse 8. It says, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I am the man formerly known as the blind beggar. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Didn't see where he went. <laughs> it's actually not in the story, but it's kind of a stupid question. <laughs> right? So the burning question is, how did this blind man receive his sight? So let's go back to that. Jesus spits in the dirt, makes mud, and puts it on the man's eyes. Then Jesus tells this blind man to go to the pool of Siloam. He told a blind man to go to the pool of Siloam and once there, wash the spit mud off his eyes. Now, if, if you're anything like me, there's two thoughts that arise. The first is, Gross. <laughs> Gross. And some of you are like, no, it's, it, it's Jesus. No. It's not any less disgusting just because it's Jesus. <laughs> you guys imagine, if, if some of you are like, you want to sterilize this story, imagine if I said, hey, if you're experiencing confusion this morning, just come forward because I'm going to spit in some dirt, you know. And <laughs> but second and more important after, after like gross is the question, Why? Like, put yourself in, in, in your story into this man's shoes for a second. Like, why, why this way? This man has been, has been blind since birth. The only thing he's ever known is darkness, blindness. And Jesus shows up one day. This man who can heal people with just a word or a touch. I mean, after all, many were healed by Jesus, like, instantly. But this man and his, they're different. Jesus spits into the dirt, and he puts mud in his eyes, and then he tells him to go, to walk, and then wash it out. And instead of fixing this man's problem instantly, Jesus instead puts this man on a journey. So this blind man begins walking to the pool. Still in darkness, he starts walking either by himself or maybe with some help, but either way, this blind man is having to make a journey. He's not able to see ahead of himself, but it's just 
one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, in front of the other. Now, this is, this is all nice and fine as far as the story goes, when it's, as long as it's someone else's story. Right? Like this is inspiring and awesome when it's someone else's journey. But how does this feel when it's your story? When it's your journey? I mean, try to imagine everything this man is feeling step after step. He's wondering, will this work? This is ridiculous. Should I stop walking? Should I turn back? Is this, is this even worth it? And he has that, that unsettling combination of hope and fear, like hope for the future and for healing and hope for a miracle, yet also this fear of disappointment that we all feel sometimes. But he keeps walking toward the pool. Who knows how long it takes? We don't know how long the journey was, but eventually he arrives and he bends down and he gets his hands into the water and he begins to wash the mud from his eyes. And suddenly, the man who's only ever known darkness is able to see. The miracle finally happened for him. It happened on the other side of the journey. It happened in a way that is so different than what most of us want. How did this man get his sight? Well, to get his sight, this man had to hold on to Jesus' words. Like every step is, is it worth trusting him? Every step was a step of trust. Every step was hearing, go to the pool, go to the pool, go to the pool. What? Are you kidding? Go to the pool. Okay. Every step, a combination of fear and hope, that combination of those two things that we, we know all too well. And he held on to Jesus' words, and eventually he received sight. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus so often in the real world. We have to hold on. And often following Jesus looks like taking one step at a time, putting one foot in front of the other, even when we can't see, even when we're not fully sure it'll work. So we hold on. Jesus promises to be the light that can lead us home. The ultimate question is, will we trust him? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you with whatever you're facing in your life right now to hold on? Where is Jesus taking you on a journey? Where is that tension for you between hope and feeling disappointment? Jesus promises that he is the light and he will lead us home. And so what beauty might await you if you hold on to his words? Like what if Jesus really does know what he's doing? John, the, the writer of the gospel, like one of the 12 disciples, he took step after step, day after day, following Jesus. And he couldn't be certain that it really was all going somewhere. Now, sometimes it felt like it was. He had those moments of spine-tingling, like goosebumpy, those moments with Jesus. But the other moments, it's like, he's just, he wondered. And then one day, Jesus was arrested and crucified. And it looked like none of it was real. It looked like none of it was true. It looked like he had hoped in vain. He had followed the wrong man. And that day, his hope and his fear of dis disappointment collided. And disappointment overcame. But something unexpected happened. Because three days later, Jesus was raised. John saw him alive again. He ate with him. He spent 40 more days with him. 
And suddenly, all that Jesus taught began to make so much more sense. Suddenly, where John was blind, he was now beginning to see. He followed Jesus in what often felt like darkness, but at the end of the road was sight. There was light. There was home. So he followed the light, and it led him home. And he told everybody he could about the light for the rest of his days. And when he was, when he was an old man with only a little time left, John decided to write the story of Jesus for people that he couldn't tell face to face, for future generations like you and me. And in his attempt to capture the essence of Jesus, John begins his story with this. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that same invitation is offered to you and me moment by moment our entire life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father in heaven, I thank you for the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led, led the people the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land, on their way home. And Jesus, you are you're like the pillar. You're leading us somewhere. You're leading us home. And I pray that you would help us to build our life on, on the foundation of, of your teaching and who you are. There are a lot of things we can build our life on but none of them will withstand the flood. Jesus, would you, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? And for those that are in a spot of just confusion and chaos, I pray that you would just speak words of comfort, like right to their hearts today and this week. You're with them. You're guiding them. And home is the destination at the end of the journey. It is. And so, God, would you bless us? Would you pour out your blessing on us?